we look forward to that. So we're in Third John. And we are in verse 9. Remember, uh, last week we finished uh, 2 John. We got into the beginning of 3 John here looking at, uh, we talked about uh, how they knew, he mentioned there, come back for just a second. He mentions Gaius there in verse 1, he loves and truth. He mentions how uh, he wants them to continue to prosper, how they want, he wants them to do well, uh, not only their own health physically, but also spiritually as well, which is more important. As he mentions there in verse 2, uh, he talks about how there's no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in truth, and he carries that through, and, and he wants them to continue to remain faithful to the Lord. But then we get to verse 9, and the tone of his letter to these individuals changes quite a bit. We want to read verse 8, and then we want to look at verse 9. Verse, uh, actually, let's back up here to verse 5, and we'll read through and pick up in verse 9. It says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers, who have bore witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Now, he's talking about how they have received and encouraged brothers and sisters you have been following the truth, those who have been out preaching and teaching, they've been doing their best to send them on their way and to help provide for them in various in various ways. But then we get to verse 9, and this is kind of where, again, the tone changes a little bit. He says, I wrote to the church, talking about where he is at. But Diotrephes, he says, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Now, if you think about that for a second, he says, I wrote to the church, but then he mentions how one singular individual caused them to cause him to be hindered from speaking with the entire church. He says about diatrophies, and then he begins to talk about, kind of characterize some more about who this man is. He says he loves to have the preeminence. Now, in preeminence means to have a fondness to be first, which means basically we'd say today somebody wants to be the patriarch of the church and he thinks they're in charge. Uh, that's really the idea we find here. Someone who is fond of being first, uh, to desire to be uh, the boss, um, which is kind of an inter interesting thing about it because when he speaks of diatrophies, is he, is he uh, condoning what he is doing or is he condemning what he is doing? You look at verse 9, is he speaking in, to him in a way that is con condoning or encouraging his actions, or is he condemning his actions? Condemning, right? Which is interesting to think about it. One man is being condemned because he's trying to basically be in charge. Now, if you were to look in the, the denominational world, if you were to visit a or talk to someone who's a member of a denomination, and you were to ask them, well, who is the person in charge where you're at. Who's the one I need to talk to? Who would they say? Using denominational terms. The pastor. The pastor, right? The pastor, what would be their quote-unquote person in charge? And so if that's the case, wouldn't verse 9 only condemn diatrophies but anyone, anyone who is singularly trying to be in charge of the church, wouldn't that condemn that as well? Well, yeah. 
because he writes to the church, which is a group of people. He didn't write just to Diotrephes. He wrote to the entire church. He says, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, he says in verse 10, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. And then he begins to talk about some things he's done. Crowding against us, and then he says, with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Now, there, there are listed here really five things that this person has done. He is prating against him. That's the first one. Some, sometimes I think four, some people say five, but they kind of split up prating and then, and then with malicious words. He's prating against them, and he's also using malicious words uh, to do so. He, is, uh, he does not receive the brethren. That's the third one. He forbids those who wish to do so, and then he puts them out of the church. That's the fifth one. And so what is he doing? Well, he's, this, remember, this is John, a man of God, obviously. And he's encouraging to walk in truth, right? Based upon that, does Diotrephes have any reason, first of all, we have to recognize that his actions are sinful. There's no such thing as a singular boss, which is not a, a biblical term uh, when it comes to church leadership. There's not a singular person who's in charge in the church. I'm not, not one single person here individually is, a patriarch in the church, that's not biblical. We see that sometimes being acted out, but sinful. And so he's writing to them, the Diotrephes is hindering them, but what is the message that John is bringing to them? It's been to walk in the truth. That's what he wants them to do. And so if Diotrephes does not want them to receive him, what is he not really wanting? Not just John. What does that say, say to say about his attitude towards the truth. He doesn't want to hear it, right? And he's not only that, but he is, as he points out here in verse 10, he is actively doing what else? Is he preventing people from hearing it? Absolutely. Definitely, yeah. He, is, he, is, he doesn't want to hear it, and so he doesn't want it, and so he doesn't want anyone else to want it either. Because the truth, has, no doubt, as John would bear out as well, would condemn that person's actions. I think that's probably part of it. But another is, he wants to also be the person in charge. That's when he points out there, he wants to have, he loves to have the preeminence, and he doesn't want the truth, because it would totally ruin what he is trying to do. Right? And so if you look at verses 9 and 10, uh, it's very much a, a negative light that's being, being used to, put up, to look at the altarpiece, because he's, he's hindering the truth, He's hindering others from hearing it. He himself is in a position which is in contradiction to what the Bible says concerning how the church is to, to be governed, to use that term, how it's to be organized. And so he is he is not want any any he does not want John to come in because it would he would no doubt preach against that, right? I mean he is in just these two verses here. But you look at verse 10. He says, therefore, if I, if I come, which means it's not certain that he will, he says, I will call to his mind, call to mind his deeds, which he does. Do you think Diotrephes wants that? Basically, what he's saying is, I will call him out on it, and he'll have to either repent, and we know what happens. The Bible tells us the person refuses to do what is right. 
ultimately what happens is the Bible tells us they are no longer a part of the body of Christ. But our relationship with that person changes. We no longer have that fellowship we once had with them. We find that there uh, in Matthew chapter 18. But here, Dotrephes isn't just sitting against one brother. He's sitting really against the whole entire church. It most definitely is public. I mean, John's not even there, and he knows about it. And so he would have to be called out on those things and be called to repent. But what's going to happen, we find in verse 10, he's prating against them with malicious words. which means he's talking about them. John and his companions, uh, and, and not content with that, meaning the idea there that that wasn't enough. He himself does not receive us, which means he doesn't want to have anything to do with us, and forbids those who wish to. Does he have the right to do that? No. People, right or wrong, can choose who they wish to receive. Now, receive is the idea of who we have fellowship with. We decide who we're going to have fellowship with. No one else can make us not have fellowship with someone. They can advise us, they can encourage us, encourage us to examine certain, certain things, right, concerning a person's actions and lifestyle, which that's fine. But to forbid it is saying that he, it's almost by force saying you cannot receive that person. You know, in all reality, only the Bible does that. Only the Bible forbids us to see people. It tells us why, explains why, it tells us the dangers of it, but again, don't we have to decide to follow the Bible or not? And so he is, he is going way beyond uh, anything which is scriptural. He's not advising them. He is forbidding them. And then he says, and putting them out of the church. He is completely the one who is, it's not the church of Christ. It is a church of diatrophies. He's talking about it. And it's no longer the church of the Bible. And so... He's condemning him. He, he would call him out on there in verse 10, and no doubt Diotrephes wants no part of that. Now, if you continue reading here, looking at verse 11, notice what else John says here. He says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. What good example of evil do you think they have not to imitate? Diotrephes, right? The guy he was just talking about. Don't follow his example. That's not how we are to act. Do not imitate what is evil. He says, But what is good? He who does good is of God, but he who does not, but he who does evil has not seen God. Now, again, imitate what is good. And they have seen examples, and Dostrophes is definitely one of them, of what is evil. Trying to have a preeminence, talking about people, saying, saying malicious things against them, forbidding things which they cannot forbid, and then putting people out of church, which... If, if Dr. Freeze is the one who's in charge, and it's not the church is putting people out, it's him who's actually putting people out. And so, again, that's why I say it's not the church of the Lord anymore, it's the church of Dr. Freeze. If, if that is the case, if he's allowed to continue. And so that's why we find in verse 11, he says, Do not imitate what is evil. Do not follow after it, do not follow its pattern, do not follow its, its example. Because, you know, today, there are some today who probably look at Dr. Freeze if they, you know, if his name, was different today, and people saw the same attitude today, some people would go right along with it. What's wrong with that? We need someone, you know, who can be a strong voice for, for what is right. The problem is, it's not the voice for what is right. He's wrong from the very get-go. Wanting to have the preeminence, he's wrong there. Wanting to refuse people who are loving the truth, he's wrong there. Wanting to forbid others to do the same, he's wrong there. 
wanting to cast him out of the church or doing so, he's wrong there. And so he's not an example of anything that is positive, as John is making mention of there. So do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Now, if you were to reverse Diotrephes' actions, you wouldn't find him forbidding. What you would find him doing would be inviting. You would find him saying, we're just waiting for you. You'd find him encouraging brethren to, you know, bring this person in, listen to what he has to say, examine his words, you know, be like those in Thessalonica, you search the scripture daily, find whether these things were so. You'd be encouraging things like that to, to seek out and to listen to godly and sound Bible teaching, or for us today, Bible teaching would say. But Diotrephes doesn't do that. And then again, he points out, he who does, he, he, he who does good, is of God, but he does not, but he does evil, or there has not seen God. So we cannot be following after evil and doing evil things, imitating evil, and then say, well, I'm, I'm of God, or I'm a Christian, right? Now, the atrophies, I'm sure, would say, well, yeah, I'm a faithful servant of God. Well, the problem is, he wasn't really accurate, was he? He wouldn't be if he said that. Now, if you look at verse 12, you have an example of, he gives Demetrius here in verse 12, an example of what you know, imitating good, in what we should be imitating. Demetrius, he says, has a good testimony, which means he has a good report. He has a good, we sometimes say a good report. He has a good, uh, you know, he's spoken well of, among others, right? He has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. When you think about that phrase, and from the truth itself, if you think about what that means, he's saying that if you were to look at the Bible, or for us to be said Bible, then scriptures, right? And you look at what Demetrius is doing, you'd say, it agrees with him. It agrees with his actions. It agrees with his attitude. It agrees with what he's doing. And so in that way, the truth itself gives a good testimony to him. And then he says, and we, bear, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. And so he says, others say he is what? A faithful servant of God, right? The truth itself would be in agreement. And he says, and we also bear witness, which means they have seen it firsthand. And you know that our testimony is true. And so he's saying, you know, others talk, have talked about how faithful he is. The truth of God's word would agree with his actions and his words. We have seen it firsthand. You have no reason to think that we're not being honest. And so is Demetrius to be taken as a, reviewed as a faithful servant of God? Yeah. But it's interesting, he doesn't just say that he has a good testimony or that we've seen ourselves, but he also says from the truth itself, which means the Bible is in agreement or the scriptures are in agreement with him, with his actions. Because people today sometimes will have a good testimony about people, but sometimes over the years, people kind of can change, and sometimes not for the good. Sometimes they become stronger in faith, and that's great, but sometimes that's not the case. And so sometimes we, we, and I've dealt with this firsthand, someone who I've known for a long time, and I go visit with them, get to know them, work with them a little while, and then I go visit with them again. We start having some conversations, and I realize, what you're talking about, it's not right. It's not, you know, the, the truth itself does not bear witness of what you're saying. And so people over years can change. One of the other is a person who I knew for a really, really short period of time, and he changed pretty quickly. Um, Winning, going very far on some, on some things, but uh, so it's not just that we need to think or have a good idea about what we're saying for truth. The Bible, the scriptures itself, 
have to have an agreement with what they're teaching, right? I mean, we don't go just by what other people have said. I think that's why John points out here the truth itself bears witness, right? Not just us, not just others who have talked about him. The truth itself is an agreement. Verse 13 says, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. Now, I don't know why it is. I kind of like the way he says that, pen and ink. We don't write pen and ink anymore, do we? No, it's email or text or something, right? Uh, I'll, you know, tend to write with your keyboard and mouse pad, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, but that's, John says here, he doesn't wish to write, them, uh, write uh, to them with pen and ink, and he wants to come to them quickly. He wants to see them face to face. Because I think we would agree, are some things better handled face-to-face? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, text messages can be seen a thousand different ways. You know, people send me stuff like, what are you talking about? Well, I didn't mean like that. This is what I meant. And they call you, okay. Because that sounds, okay. You know, and I've done the same thing. What are you talking about? Uh, And so some things are just better face-to-face. And so we find here... In verses 13 and 14, that's what he's talking about. He says, I wish to speak face to face. And, you know, he doesn't say what he's wanting to talk to him about. I'm sure the octopus is one of them. But he wants to see them. I think not only just to not only just talk to them, but also be an encouragement to them. Because sometimes, isn't it true just seeing someone who you know is a person who loves God, just seeing their face, it makes you happy to see them and know they're there. Right? We go to lectureships and gospel meetings and things, and sometimes I see people, and I'm smiling before I even get to shaking their hand because I'm just quite seeing them. And I think that's part of it here with John. He wants to see them because it would do him good and do them good as well. And then he closes by saying, Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet, greet the friends by name. Now, you think about this last phrase here, peace to you, which is, you know, we say, you know, be safe. We love you, things like that, right? Peace to you. Some of our Catholic friends use that today in their mass. Peace to you, peace to you. It's not wrong, but we don't really talk that way in 2021, do we? No, we say, we say, right? I mean, this is a cultural saying, basically. Uh, Our friends greet you. Now, in context, who do you think his friends are that he's talking about? Christians, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ, those who probably the Archipelies also probably wouldn't want to receive either. Our friends greet you, and he says, greet the friends by name, would be, again, a reference to most likely other brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. Now, that brings to end Third John, and don't worry, I do have more prepared for us to talk about today. But before we do that, are there any comments or questions regarding uh, the book of Third John or First, Second, Third John as we covered all of them the last couple of weeks. Russ, admittedly, I'm, uh, I haven't been writing this story in a long time, and uh, he's bringing up uh, an interesting point. It doesn't indicate right here um, how long he's been involved with uh, that congregation, but, and again, not even having a good uh, idea of about the year uh, this is being uh, written about. Mm-hmm. But it just seems to me that he's, he's dragging in a whole lot of politics from the world into the church and wanting to weed out any competition and any threats to mm-hmm. uh, you know, some uh, political body he wants to raise up himself. 
Well, if you think about it, you ask, think about this question: How do denominations get started? Just like, yeah, just like that. Because they start limiting. I mean, you start limiting what is what is preached. You start limiting what is taught. You start limiting. Well, you know who's in charge. First of all, the Archbishop, right? Uh, and then you and then you start changing some things about what you want to be taught because diatrophies, you know, if he is to continue, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse, right? I mean, you think about some of our denominational friends. Not to just not to just bash them. I'm just saying, if you think about, and this is why they exist, this is how they come about, right? They start deviating from the Bible because there are certain things they don't want to talk about, or certain things they want to change to something else, right? And I love the trunks. But anyway. Um, Denominations start that way because they want a certain thing taught. You know, if you were to ask a denominational person, do you follow the Bible? Their answer probably is going to be, well, yeah, yeah, we follow the Bible. But if you ask them if they have the creed book, now, to be honest, some may not even know they have one. When I was a member of the Baptist church, I didn't know they had one or a set of bylaws, so to speak, until I got ready to leave uh, that congregation and to leave that denomination. Um, and so if you were to ask them to have a set of bylaws, and they say no, or a creed book, no. But if you were to ask a, the, the pastor, or whoever it is who's speaking, that person in charge, if they're honest, they will tell you, yeah, they do. I mean, you can go online, you can find those things uh, you know, on the internet, they're not hard to find. And what you find in there are deviations from the Bible, right? We find where they have departed from the truth. You find instead of where, you know, Acts 2.38 and all these examples of baptism, things like that, you'll start finding other things. You'll start finding, uh, you know, instead of elders and deacons, you'll find deacons. Instead of preachers, you'll find pastors. And to clarify, a pastor, according to Bible terms, is the same thing as an elder, which means, you know, if you know, and the Bible tells us, elders have to be at least two, which means there cannot be a singular pastor, right? And so there you go. Uh, but they deviate from that and a whole other things. And then you, so you have to create a creed book to go along with it. And so you're no longer following the Bible, you follow a creed book. And that's what the author piece would, his actions would result in that, right? You know, we don't want to bring John in here because he's going to talk about this and this and this. So let's focus on these things here and we'll just write them down and there's your creed book right there. And that's how it begins, right? Anything else this morning for you? Go on, so feel free. You know, first, second, and third John, they're not big books. You know, first John's five chapters, second, third John only one. But they're very encouraging. There's also a lot of warnings in there. You know, first John's a lot about how we can know that we belong to God, how we can know the love of God, things like that. And second, third John continues really with the idea of, you know, how important truth is and how, how much joy it brings to God, how much joy it brings to people like John as well. But then we also find warnings you know, about those who are against Christ, the Antichrist, the Atrophies, who loves the preeminence. How basically he also, in reality, if he's against the truth, could you say he's against Christ? Technically, yeah. And so he, he know, I'm sure in his time, he probably would have never said that. Uh, but anyone who's against Christ is, you know, is an Antichrist, according to the Bible. And so... We find encouragement to how we can know we're in God, in, in God, in love of God, how we want to follow truth, and then we find the dangers of what, not of what deviating from the truth can result in, right? And some of the ways that happens. Those, you know, the, the, you know, the Gnostics who didn't believe that Christ came in the flesh, 
I feel like Dodger Pete's going to be in charge, and I'm sure he's not alone. You know, he's one example. There's probably other people in the Bible, and during or during uh, John's time, he had the same problem that just start mentioning my name because, to be honest, he is one example on how this is how you deal with that. And what was he going to do? He's going to call it out. And so it is. They are very encouraging to the books, just like any book of the Bible. And so um, Jude, interestingly enough, to me deals with similar things that we find, at least in Third John. Because when you get to Jude, as we'll talk about here in a moment, he begins by talking about how he wanted to write to them to encourage them and talk about their common salvation, which means the things that, you know, how much they love God, you know, the common things that Christians talk about many times. And, uh, but he talks about them, he says, but instead he had to write to them about something else. Now, um, are there any comments for moving it forward? Any further forward. All right, let's go ahead and look at the book of Jude. Now, Jude, again, a singular chapter book, right? Uh, is written to meet an immediate need, which is which is determined uh, pretty pretty quickly right off in the book of Jude. You start seeing the need of why this is written. Uh, verse three seems to indicate a, an original intention, as again, as we'll talk about in a second. An emergency which arose that caused the author to revise his plan, uh, which is really kind of sad that he, he wants to write to them and to encourage them and talk about how much basically they have in common, how much they love one another, how much they love the truth. And all that has to go by the wayside because there's something else they have to talk about. Which also makes me think how sometimes you have to realize we just have to have difficult conversations. You know, every day as being a Christian, it's not going to be sunshine and rainbows, right? We're going to have hard times, and we're going to have to talk about things with one another, uh, you know, examine ourselves sometimes, uh, and so difficult things have to take place. Uh, there are there are seven points made in three groups, and these won't be on the screen. Um, there, are se- there are several, excuse me, not seven, several points made in groups of threes. Uh, verse one, you have those to whom Jude is writing, uh, in verse 2, you have Jude's greeting. Uh, in verse 4, you have the false teachers, who the false teachers are and why the faith needs defending. And then again in verse 4, you have specifically these certain men are described. And then in verses 5 and through 7, you have God has always dealt with false teachers and will again. In verse 8, you have description of filthy dreamers or those who are have false, false hope or false ideas, which we'll talk about as we get there. Verse 11, the, the path false teachers follow, what it's like. Uh, verses 14 and 15, the prophecies concerning false teachers. Uh, verse 19, you have those mockers who walk after their own lust and, they, and they're described. Verse 20 and 21, Christians are to build up themselves, are to build themselves up in the most holy faith. Verse 22 and 23, the positive, aggressive attitude towards those in error can be, who, uh, who can be saved. And then verse 25, the tribute to be paid to God, our Savior. Now, Jude, again, you're only talking about 25 verses, but there's a whole lot there. And if you want these points later, let me know. I know I went right on through them. But um, there's a lot dealt with in short, in a really short span. And I think many times in the Bible, there's a lot said and just a few verses, you know, 
when I think about things like that, I think about the book of Proverbs, for example. You can take a single verse from Proverbs and preach on it if you want to, because there's so much there that's talked about. And Jude, not a long book, but there's a whole lot that he deals with. He deals with attitudes, he deals with actions, he deals with intentions, he deals with consequences, and he deals with our, you know, what is required of us as Christians and followers of God. All right, so let's look at Jude. Looking here at verse 1. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother, uh, brother of James. So this reveals the name of the author, Jude. It's a common name. Uh, there's nine in, in New Testament. Uh, then the text describes who he is. He's a, he's a bond servant or a, a slave, rather. Uh, sometimes it's the term used of Jesus Christ, which means he is bound to serve Christ. He describes himself as, as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And he says a brother of, of James there in verse 1. Uh, this, this James is the one who, who also authored uh, the book of James there in the New, here in the New Testament. Both Jude and James are regarded as the brothers of our Lord. And then we find there in verse, uh, verse 1, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, when someone, you ever heard someone say they were called to do something? And if you were to ask them what they are meaning, many times, and there's deviations of this, but the idea is they felt like God has spoke to them in some way or revealed to them in some way that they should perform or do a certain action or live a certain way, right? Which is interesting because if you think about it, you talk to these people and you ask them, okay, when did this calling happen? It's... At least in my experience, 90% of the time, it's either around a Bible study, it's, it's because the results of a Bible study they had, a sermon they heard, a Bible class they heard, about something, a Bible podcast, something along those lines. The other 10% of the time, if, you're, if you listen to what they say, it has a lot to do with they feel guilty about how they've been living and how they want to change, uh, which is, I mean, if we're living in sin, then you should feel guilty, I mean, you should want to change, but... This idea of being called, the ideas of the world today, is they, they, it's pictured as a miraculous thing, right? That God spoke to them or revealed to them in, in, in some way that they should be doing something. But again, like I said before, 90% of the time is surrounded by some type of Bible-related activity. Study, a sermon, a class, a video they watch. And what that tells me, and what that should help us think of as well, is what really called them? The Bible message, right? The Bible has a, has cut them in some way and wanted and has made them think about things, right? And we think, well, that kind of sounds, you know, really shallow. If you look at Acts two, that's exactly what happened. In Acts two, when Peter preached the gospel sermon during the day of Pentecost, verse thirty-seven says they responded to they recovered their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Men and brethren, what shall we do?" They heard what Peter said. Now, could they say they were they felt called to obey? Yeah, they could. But what called them to obey? Well, what did what did Peter preach to them? The gospel. And so it's the gospel that calls us today. Now, I think part of the problem we see today when we talk about when people say they, they feel like they've been called or God has led them to do something, 
it's really kind of the same thing when you, when you, if you talk to them, ask them, kind of explain it, which sometimes, interesting enough, not to pick on these people or anything, is sometimes they really don't know how to explain it or explain it very well what they mean by that. I'm not saying that to, to make them feel bad. It's just when you boil it down and it comes back to the Bible each and every time, the Bible message in some way, they've heard a portion of it, and they, they realize they need to do something, they want to do something, right? Now, we are called by the gospel. Uh, the call was and is extended through the gospel, Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, there you go and preach the gospel to every creature, right? And how are they going to be called? By hearing the gospel message. It's the same today. A non-Christian, there is no evidence in the Bible of a, of a non-Christian ever being called by God directly in a miraculous way to obey. I've never seen it. You know, some want to say, well, you know, the household of Cornelius, Cornelius was already praying to God. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but what was he doing? He was already praying to God. He already knew about it. So you can't say God called him to obey if he already knows about it. He just had to obey in accordance to the, the, the Bible, according to the scriptures, right? In reality, but in context, he's going to be using an example of the gospel going to the Gentiles, too. But anyway, um, but we don't ever find someone who is a non-Christian being called and spoken to directly by God in a miraculous way to obey the gospel. It is always through either preaching and teaching, which means it all comes back to the Bible. The Bible, the gospel, what is what calls us today. You know, Paul even talks about there in the book of Romans, and he says, how can they hear, or how can they believe unless in, in whom they have not heard? Which means you have to hear it first, right? Now, are there some today who believe that you are born saved or lost, and there's nothing you can do about it. I don't remember the, the term exactly, but the idea is they have been predestined to be saved or lost. Now, if you look in the Bible, we read from Genesis through Revelation. God, when he speaks of those who are chosen, he always speaks in regard to those who obey the gospel, those who are following him. They are the ones who are chosen to have certain rewards and certain benefits. The chosen are never those who are chosen prior to birth to have eternal life or not, because that would take away free will, right? That was completely the gate, one of the most famous texts in the Bible, right? Remember Joshua, what does he say? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, which indicates a choice. He says, choose yourselves this day whom you will serve. There was a choice that had to be made. Well, if they were born saved or lost, condemned or or to be saved for, for all eternity, then they would have no reason to make a choice. And so when we say we are called, we have to realize in Bible terms, we are called by the gospel. We hear it and we act upon it. That's what we find in Acts 2, is we find throughout the Bible. Why did Noah build an ark? Because he was bored? No, it was because God spoke to him and said, build an ark. He responded to God's message. He was already a follower of God. We know that. That's why he was spoken to in the first place. But we never find an example of anyone who, who as a non-Christian, was spoken to directly by God to do something to become a Christian. We're only spoken to by God through the written word today. In Acts 2 and throughout the book of all the New Testament, we find the Bible reveals to us, if we want to become a follower of Christ, we have to obey the gospel. And we find here, he says in verse, in verse 1, that those who are called, again, by the gospel, sanctified by God, 
sanctifies, the idea of those who have been uh, blessed, those who have been made pure. Something that's sanctified is made pure, is made holy. So you are called by the gospel, but we are sanctified by God when we are what? Baptized, right? When, you know, when Peter spoke to those individuals throughout the book of Acts, and in verse 37 they respond, what shall we do? He didn't say, hey, you already believe, you're good. No, he said, repent and be baptized. And he said, for the remission of your sins, so that your sins can be remitted, right? And at that point, we are sanctified by God. So to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Preserved means we are kept. The ones you're to the ones called, being kept, we are kept, what? We are kept and preserved to go to heaven. Peter talks, or not Peter, Paul that talks about, he says the same idea, he says, I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him unto that day. He's talking about the one he has committed his soul to, which is Christ. Now, what's interesting is in the New Testament, while Christ is preaching on the earth, we were technically under the old law. And so after he died on the cross, Rose again, sin to heaven. Acts two began the new the New Testament time period. Do you know that after that, that those who, who remained, who followers of John the Baptist, were baptized into the baptism of Christ, which indicates they were no longer part of following after the law; they were following after the new law, which is the baptism of Christ. And so we are preserved in Jesus Christ. We are preserved to have heaven as our home. So we we hear the gospel. We obey it. We are sanctified by God and we preserve. We are kept in it. When we are loyal and faithful to the Lord, we are preserved in Jesus Christ. That's why when we read about uh, how um, there in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, uh, verse 27 says, For me, as we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Which means when we're baptized, we actually put on Christ. We are added to the body of Christ. Therefore, we are preserved in, in Jesus Christ. There in verse 1. Um, okay, let's just stop there because there's a lot to many of these verses. Of course, verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now we can stop, right? He wanted to have mercy and have peace. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, when we come back next week, we'll pick up in Jude, verse 2. Uh, but like I pointed out before, you can already see the things we can learn in Jude just from one singular verse. I mean, if you read that through, we may not catch some of that when we're reading sometimes. We think about, okay, what does that mean to be called? What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be served in Christ? And so Jude revealed a lot of things for us, yet again, still for us today to learn from. Okay, we're going to stop there this morning. I do thank you for your time and for your attention. And next week, we'll plan to pick up in Jude, verse 2. And so, is there any way to briefly... Um, without getting too sidetracked, um, bring up the differences between called and chosen? Yes. So called is we are called by the gospel, right? Chosen is, is we find the Bible. When God talks about the chosen ones, he has chosen of those who obey the gospel are going to have heaven as their home. And so the, the chosen are those who are obedient. Now chosen sometimes can, our denominational friends and some others sometimes will, Kind of put that as if we are chosen by God to be to be saved, and kind of lean towards that being chosen before time began. That's not the case. When Christ tells us, when God tells us that we are He has chosen before time again, you know who will have the idea. And I forget the phrase exactly, but 
He has chosen before time again that those who obey the gospel are going to have heaven as their home. If, if we were to apply it in the sense that God chose us to be faithful or, uh, or unfaithful, that would take away free will. So that can't be what it means. But the chosen are those who are Christians. We are chosen to live separately from the world. He has chosen that when we obey the gospel, here's how you are to live. And here is how you are to remain faithful to God. And so, and those who do that are chosen to have heaven as their home. So we're called by the gospel. We are chosen. He has chosen those who, who have obeyed that call through the gospel to have heaven as their home. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, chosen and, and called, a little bit different, but the chosen is always the Christian. Uh, and it doesn't, you cannot negate free will. And so it cannot be anything uh, that would... It cannot be the idea that we're chosen to either have it or not before time again. Well, I like the indication of, of obedience. Um, you know, it's one thing to hear something, but then it's, it's altogether something different. Yeah. Be obedient to Yeah, you can hear things, then you can actually can hear to understand, right? I mean, you, you go to a football game, you hear a lot of stuff, but do you understand everything that's going on? No. And, but if you hear, it's intent to listen and to actually to understand which in, in Bible terms leads to obedience, definitely. And that's how we become the children of God, the, the Christian. Any other comments, questions? All right, we'll, we'll stop there this morning.